Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to another episode of Battle Walks. I'm battlefield historian Matt McLaughlin, and joining me as always as we walk across the battlefields of Europe is historian Pete Smith. Pete, welcome back. Hi Matt, yeah, nice to be here again. Thanks to everyone who's given us such great feedback lately. The the podcast is really starting to reach a lot of people. We've had a lot of downloads, especially over the last couple of weeks, and some excellent feedback, some great comments on YouTube, great comments on Facebook and Twitter, so please keep them coming because I don't know about you, Pete, but it's what keeps me going, hearing that people are actually interested in what we've got to say. Well, it's nice to know that somebody's listening. Um, yeah, it is. It's great. It's uh, really reassuring. Interesting walk we've got today, Pete. We've done, so you know, going back over what we've done recently, we've done the Somme, we've done Gallipoli, we've done Belgium, we've done some World War II sites, you know, fairly modern history. But today I wanted to go back in time a little bit. We're going to go back, this is, you know, many hundreds of years. We're going to do the Battle of Argencourt. Now, this is an unusual one for both you and I. I should say at the outset, this is a walk I haven't, ha- I haven't actually done on the ground. So I'll be uh, I'll be joining you, Pete, on the, on this virtual walk along with uh, everyone that's listening to this podcast. But um, interesting to do one on a, a more ancient battlefield. Yep, I mean, there's so much history around where I live. I live on the on the Somme battlefield, the village of Flair, um, two hours away, and we have Agincourt, Cressy, about the same uh, d- distance. Waterloo, which hopefully we'll do in a in a future podcast, uh, about two hours the other direction. I, one of the comments I often make is, "I'm about two hours from almost uh, everywhere, including the coast." So Agincourt, yeah, well within striking distance uh, of where I live. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit about the history and then walking the ground. But I, th- I think we should start by saying that these these older battlefields are quite different to ones like the Somme or even Gallipoli that we would walk. What's the experience like going to a battlefield that's five or 600 years old compared to a battlefield that's a century old or even newer than that? 
Well, I have to say, for Agincourt, there's almost, uh, well, not almost, there is nothing that is left that you can say for absolute certainty that was here. There's the remnants of a little bit of a castle that's very difficult to, to, to view anyway. Um, so bucket loads of imagination needed as you as you walk the paddocks. But, of course, that's that's one of the issues. The paddocks, the fields, haven't changed at all. They are exactly the same. You know, there's been no motorways going through these areas. So, so nothing has changed. Yep, new roads, uh, I suppose. But the views that we will get on the walk are the views that the soldiers had in 1415 so it's still a great place to explore well let's talk about the history of the battle of Argencourt. so as you say we're going back to 1415 so more than 600 years i'm really excited about this give us a give us a background because it's a little bit of a convoluted story that led to these these french and and, and english troops meeting on the battlefield give us the background of the battle of Argencourt. I think convoluted is, is a very good term to use because there's an ongoing niggle between England and France as to who is ruling. Is it France that's ruling England or is it England that's ruling France? And France is very much a fractured country at that time. Don't think it's like France of today. There are treaties going on. It's it's a fractured place. It boils down to a, a King Philip the Fourth of France who basically was a, a somewhat unifying figure. And what we end up with is that his grandson is Edward III of England, and he is the last surviving grandson. So by descent, he should be replacing King Philip IV uh, of France and ruling both uh, of the countries. But he's not going to. There's a, a, an usurper, if that's the word, Philip of uh, Valois, who is going to be given the, the throne effectively in France. And so we're not happy. And so a war starts. It's the start of what is known as the Hundred Years' War. Um, and it actually runs for longer than 100 years, which is always slightly confusing. But there's a little bit of a gap in the middle. So 1337 is when it starts. And this is Edward III of England. And it all goes fairly well, you have to say. He invades. We get uh, Cressy and a, a whole series of Poitiers of successful campaigns which eventually will lead to a treaty, the Treaty of uh, Bretigny in 1360, which is basically promising that uh, Britain can have a, or England, should I say, not Britain, England can have a large tract of France uh, and rule it. Um, but sadly, that's not to continue. And uh, when Charles the Fifth comes to the throne in France, 1364, basically he rescinds on this, uh, this treaty and the war kicks off again. So... We've got this very complicated history going on throughout the 14th century. What happened into the 15th century that led to the Battle of Agincourt? So what we have is, uh, this is now uh, King Henry, um, King Henry V, and he basically is the king that is, uh, he decides that he needs to sort this out and he needs to uh, to to uh, invade France, to move into France and, and teach the French a lesson and show them that he should be the king of both France and uh, England. So he lands an army at, at uh, very close to uh, Harfleur, and Harfleur is on the mouth of the of the River Seine, and uh, he lays siege to the town of the port. So it's a port, fortified port of Harfleur, which he successfully uh, takes on the 22nd of September. Unfortunately, what's happened is it's not a big army. It's not as big as it really should be, and it's also struggling with a very bad uh, cases of dysentery, which is causing immeasurable immeasurable problems as you can imagine and he decides that the best action to do is actually to head along the coast up the coast uh, uh, heading towards uh, Calais and Calais is an English enclave it's an enclave that we still control 
and move his army up to Calais, and there they will winter over the winter, ready for the campaigning again in the uh, the spring, the summer of the following year. Generally speaking, wars stop over winter because of the conditions. Uh, and so that's what he does. He heads off about 7,000 men, weaving his way through France, heading up to Calais. What is happening, though, from the French perspective, is they are attempting to catch him. They want, don't want them to get to Calais. They're going to cut them off. They have a much, much larger army. We'll talk about the sizes a little later. And that's what happens. They eventually will overtake the English army and cut them off at, at this place called Agincourt. And this is where they're back. they can no longer follow the road to Calais, so a fight has to uh, has to take place. And before we even discuss it, let's just say that... that there is no expectation, you would have to say, on the English being successful here. The numbers uh, are by far in favour of the French, and with the dysentery, uh, you would, if you were taking odds on on it being a successful uh, English uh, battle, then you certainly uh, you would you wouldn't. It's a, a ratio of about four to one uh, in uh, in numbers uh, with the, the French against the English. Well, of course, famously, it was a great English victory, uh, in spite of all the odds and one of the most famous English victories, particularly of these more ancient times. One thing I did want to talk about, Pete, we'll talk more about how the battle unfolded as we as we walk the ground, but I think it's worth touching on now probably the key element, the most famous element of the whole thing, the, the, the English longbowmen. Let's, let's talk about that in a little bit of detail because the, the, the archers firing arrows at the knights and the, 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 foot, the foot soldiers of the French was really the decisive element in the whole battle, wasn't it? Talk to me a little bit about longbowmen before we start walking the ground. Yeah. Well, I think we just need to quickly go over the, the weapons that were available at that time. We are at the, at the cusp of gunpowder and cannons being developed. So we do have cannons. They're not re- reliable. I think they're wooden with steel banding still. I think it's the period when we haven't even got solid uh, steel or, or brass or bronze uh, uh, cannons. Maybe we have a few, but I think it's still wooden cannons with uh, with with ba- steel banding around them. So, what weapon? Other weapon weaponry do we have? We have the uh, the crossbow and the longbow, and then it's swords and lances and uh, and daggers and knives uh, that you'd expect. So what is so special about the longbow? Well, the longbow at that time has just a phenomenal range, uh, 250 yards, 229 metres. It's a very powerful weapon. It has, uh, we have, they have developed uh, heads to the arrows, so bolts which can punch through armour. Um, so they're made out of yew, elm or ash, so yew being the, the better material, I think the, the preferable uh, yew. Um, they're six feet high, and it takes a, a hundred pounds draw to actually draw back on the boat to, to fire it. So this is something that men cannot just pick it up and then have a go. These are, are men that have to develop slowly, literally develop, because they need powerful muscles in their right arms to draw this hundred pounds draw on the on the bow. So it is a it is a spectacular weapon, and when you get tens, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, a few hundred men firing these. Um, at uh, at a, a phenomenal speed, ten to twelve arrows a minute, uh, fired sometimes accurately. Depends on how far that they're they're firing, so they can fire very accurately at short range. But in a almost a cloud of arrows descending upon you, uh, it it is an extraordinarily uh, successful weapon. And literally, the people that that fired these, the archers. They were trained from the age of six. So from the age of six, they will pick up a smaller bow and slowly they will develop. And it was a legal requirement in England at that time. Now, young men had to learn the bow immediately that they were they were kind of old enough, seen as old enough to, to start to understand it and be able to use it. 
And it's a lifetime of learning. They will not stop. They will use this all of their lives. In some cases, they may not have gone to war, but they will use it for hunting as well. But uh, it, it's it's something that was was almost drilled into the to the English psyche at that time. And I have to say, you have to be careful when you say English, because a lot of the Burman are actually Welsh. There's a, a big element of Welsh Burman involved in the army at this at this time. I think the other thing that's interesting, Pete, is the amount of information we gained from the discovery of the Mary Rose, uh, which the, the ship that sunk. Um, and tell us a little bit about that, because that's fascinating, the, the amount of information we gained about the, the way bows were used at this time. Well, the Mary Rose is slightly later. It's the time of uh, Henry VIII. Um, it was his flagship, I think, and it uh, it sank in the in the Solent, which is very close to Portsmouth and the Isle of Wight, in between the two, uh, preserved in the mud. And they found enormous amounts of artifacts of all types there. But perhaps the most important were they found sheaths of uh, of bows. They found sheaths of uh, of archers' bows from this period. And it was the first time where they found so many and they were able to dry them. They were still, uh, 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 once they were dried, they were perfectly good. And they were actually able to use some uh, to destruction. In other words, they could pull them back and see how much strength you really did need before the, the bow would uh, would shatter. So it, it was the first time that they really got a feel of what these bows had really been like. Because prior to that, there hadn't been any examples that you could that you could test and use. They also found, uh, sadly, I suppose, human remains, as very often are found in shipwrecks and uh, battlefields. And these human remains were looked at very carefully, and they realised that some of the guys appeared to have a slightly distorted right shoulder. In other words, the bone had grown thicker on the right shoulder, and it became fairly obvious that these were archers. And that thickening of the bone on the right shoulder was to to hold onto the muscles so that that, that um, um, enormous amount of of power needed to draw back the bow had caused a slight deformity so these guys did have literally a stronger right shoulder for drawing back on the bow and before we uh, begin walking the battlefield the last thing i wanted to say about the archers is talk to me about dysentery and uh, and the effect that that had on every man on the field but also the archers in particular I mean, we do have some accounts of this action, and uh, one of the uh, the accounts of the dysentery describes the archers as uh, uh, as actually wearing very loose or no uh, garments around uh, below the waist, and that's because if you're in the middle of a battle and you're firing your bow and you need to go to the toilet, you cannot basically run off and go to the toilet. You, you, know, you, you there's no way you can do that. So to to ease the use of going to the toilet, then they'd remove their nether garments, and interestingly, the bowmen anyway tended to remove their sh- their shoes so that they could get a grip in the mud bare feet are great for kind of getting a grip in the mud if you wore any kind of leather soled shoes you'd slide and so i always get this mental vision of these these archers uh, standing about with terrible dysentery but uh, uh, with with uh, very little below below the waist uh, and yet they were able to fight exceedingly successfully during the battle as we will discover as we as we walk on the actual site itself so I think bare feet and bare bottoms was the quote that applied uh, applied to the archers at Archancourt. It's a, it's a wonderful image. <laughs> Not necessarily what we'd expect on a battlefield, but uh, but, but a fairly uh, a fairly emotive image of what Indeed. was going on there. Well, let's begin walking, Pete. I mean, we'll talk about how the battle unfolded as we walk the ground. But uh, as we said, this is not a battlefield like our battle walk we did on the Somme, for example, where we're going to go from cemetery to memorial to trench to crater. Uh, we're going to have to use our imaginations here. Tell us, what's the ground like that we're going to be walking at Agincourt? Okay, we're going to be doing a, a circular walk, so it will literally take us right the way around the uh, the battlefield. Um, the battlefield itself is, some people, uh, you kind of mentally imagine it, because we know that the if you've done any reading on the Battle of Agincourt, you know that the enemies uh, on both sides are within uh, a, a, a 
a very restricted area. There are woods at both sides. And so you start to think that it's in a valley and it's not. The actual valley runs the opposite way. So the English army will be on slightly high ground. The French army will, will be the other side on slightly high ground. So we're going to walk on one side up onto the high ground uh, where the English uh, army was based and then look above the, uh, the English army onto the battlefield itself. Where we're starting the walk from is from a visitor centre because there is a visitor centre here, which is, uh, um, it's, uh, it's been here for a, a little while. And you can imagine before this visitor centre was built, there was nothing here to, to look at at all, uh, to give you an idea. Uh, the visitor centre, I think it was 2001 when it uh, it opened, and it was recently refurbished in 2019. And it's very very French in a way. It's, it's a lot of audio, visual stuff, a lot of high tech stuff, and also quite a few things that you can pick up. So you can pick up helmets and and the bows and uh, and swords and get a feel of what what they were like. So that's where we're going to start the walk. Is at the historical centre, as it's called. I have to ask a question about this, Pete. Is that uh, no disrespect to my French friends, but. Um... The French do this in a, a sort of an interesting way, which doesn't necessarily always appeal to our Anglo-Saxon taste. But they, it, it seems that sometimes the French either it's very, very educational, very studious, or it can go exactly the opposite way and be a little bit like Disneyland. How, uh, how is uh, how is this one uh, portrayed? It kind of falls in the middle, <laughs> I have to say. It's a bit of both. It's got some high tech stuff and it's got some very low tech stuff. Uh, it's I always feel slightly that it's aimed at students, and certainly when you go, if it's uh, in the in the uh, busy t- a busy period, then it always has uh, students are in there, and normally French students being taken around by by French guides. I don't think that many English people go there, to be honest. Uh, even though they do have English guides and uh, uh, guide books, and there's also English uh, text on a lot of the exhibits, but I don't think it's overly visited. But it's well worth going in and having a having a look round. It is. Very French is the only way I can say it, and it is looked upon from the the French uh, perspective. One of the things they make a big uh, a big issue about are the number of French nobles that died during the the battlefield. About half of the French nobility will die at Agincourt, and so there's a, an enormous list of all of the French nobles that that died. Having said that, there is an element that we tend to look at it point, from the point of view of, is this revenge for 1066 and the, the Norman invasion of, of, of England? The, this is us you know, the, uh, going back. Well, of course, if you perceive it from that, from that point of view, we're all French because, of course, the Normans who invaded England will become the rulers of France. This is 350 years later. So 350 years, a lot of a lot has changed. Those Normans that settled in England now perceive themselves as English. They are now, they are now as English as, uh, as uh, a modern English person. They, they will perceive themselves as, as English. Um, and so they are coming back to invade the country that is, I suppose, to a certain extent, their homeland, where they originally would have, have come from. Having said that, of course, the Normans were in fact Vikings. This, this history in Europe gets very confusing. But the Normans were in fact Vikings anyway, so it's all a mishmash. It's fascinating, Pete, that the, this information centre, it's a focus on the French point of view, even the fact that the information centre even exists because this was a terrible defeat at the, at the hands of the English. So it's it's fascinating that... That at the, a spot that was is renowned as a, a famous English victory over the French, the French go to the trouble of remembering it and uh, recounting their side of the story. It is, and it is a, a truly. I mean, there is some aspects of it that the French like to remember because there is some fairly horrific aspects of it. But when you look at it, a, an English army of seven thousand facing an army, and the figures are always a bit iffy, facing an army between twenty and thirty thousand Frenchmen. 
So for 20 to 30,000 Frenchmen not to be able to, uh, to, uh, to take out using a modern term, uh, an, uh, an English army of 7,000 is, is not good from a French perspective. So we've enjoyed the uh, delights of the medieval historical centre. Uh, where to now on the walk, Pete? Okay, so we're going to we're going to be walking out uh, across the battlefield, slightly to the right of it, heading towards the British, uh, uh, the English lines. Sorry, I must apologise for keep saying British. It's a habit when you're discussing the First World War. Um, and um, as we walk out, we're going to go past the church. Now, normally you think church medieval surely then perhaps the church was here but unfortunately it's not it's a 17th century church the original church which will be on our right hand side is a gothic revival style so it looks the part but in fact it's not uh, because it fell down the original church that would have been here during the the period of the of the fighting uh, fell down the only other thing that would have been here at that time is a fortification and that fortification, again, there's not really anything left. It's a, it's a, a little ripple in the, the side of a hill. Uh, so it is, a, it is there. But it was also used for the building of the village. So the, what stone was left was pulled out of it. The stone that was left from the church was pulled out and, uh, and has been reused. And it's very common in this part of Europe. If it's there and nobody's doing anything with it, you reuse it. So there's very little left. So we're going to walk past the church. It'll be on our right, right-hand side. I always uh, suggest that we stop because there's a First World War memorial there as you will find in almost every village in uh, in France, um, commemorating the men that went off to war and, di- and didn't uh, return. So it's always worthwhile, worthwhile just stopping and paying our respects to, the, to the, uh, the men on the memorial. Then we're going to walk effectively through the French lines because the French lines will cross the road in front of us. We're on the right-hand side of the battlefield and it's a fair old walk, about uh, two and a half kilometres that we're going to be walking and we'll, we'll notice that about halfway Along that two and a half kilometres, we start to climb a gentle climb. These are these are just very very rolling. It's rolling countryside here. We're still on the chalk, uh, the chalk that covers the whole of this part of northern France up to the coastline and across dips at the Channel and reappears on the south coast of England. So we're on a, a chalk base. And as we walk, Pete, we're heading now towards the English lines. Give us just a, an impression of of who was on this battlefield and 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 how they would have seen the battle. So we we know the the English have uh, have arrived and they are basically they set up camp not much of a camp when when they arrived who else do we have here well there are villages all around there are the villages and the villages are hiding you'd have to say as you would if you realise that there's a, two enormous armies appearing out of the mist one encamping at one end of uh, of uh, this gap in the trees and the one at the other. Um, but and there's a local lord as well who's also he's the lord of this castle that I just just mentioned. So the villages are round about. The armies have camped overnight. It's a rainy, drizzly, terrible uh, uh, evening. They can't light fires. It's too miserable for that. There's no time to put up any kind of uh, of, of shelter. So they're basically sitting around talking. I don't think anybody really got any sleep. Of course, the French army is so vast that just in being there, they are turning over the land all the time and it's getting muddier and muddier. So by the time of dawn, when we get this drizzly, horrible uh, dawn, then the landscape is already being t- torn up. And for anybody that's visited the, the Western Front and has walked across the, 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 the fields when they've been ploughed or has walked, in fact, in these fields around here, you will realise that the, the mud is very sticky. It's a very sticky type of mud. In fact, in my Yorkshire dialect, we would call it clarty. It's a cloying mud. It sticks to your feet. It sticks to your equipment. And it's the same type of mud there. It's, it's not, a, not a good mud mud to be walking in it's 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 very sticky 
Well, as we keep walking, we're going to walk towards the high ground. And um, just tell us about the views now, because we, we've we've now, by the time we reach this point of the battlefield, we now are close to the English sector. And uh, just give us the view from the high ground. Okay, so we're, we're going to walk into the, a village called, and again, my French pronunciation appalling, Maisoncelle, I think it is, Maisoncelle, uh, a, a village, a very small village again. Uh, so this is the next village for Maginkor, and we're going to hang a left in that village, up onto the highest point, just go beyond the highest point, and we're then going to turn uh, left into the field as soon as we've cleared the last buildings, and walk out into the field if we can, of course. It depends on the time of year. But if there's been uh, if there's been harvesting or there's been ploughing, you you can walk into French fields. It's one of the stranger aspects, and I've probably mentioned this on a previous podcast. But there is a right to roam in France, which means as long as you're not destroying crops, as long as you're not damaging anything, no farmer is going to come out and screaming and shouting at you because there is a right you can walk onto the land. So we can walk into this field and we are now overlooking the the English line, which will be directly in front of us. And beyond that, we'll see this gap, which is going to narrow between the two armies. Um, and we can then see the, uh, the the French lines at the other on, on a slight rise at the other end of the of the battlefield and here there's about uh, uh about uh, 2000 meters between uh, between the two between the two um the two armies well that range is obviously far too great even for the skilled longbowmen so what happened that led to the battle actually taking place yeah well what's going to happen is both armies just sit there looking at each other and as dawn, as dawn and the the sun comes up and there is no sun it's a miserable day and they're just looking at each other and eventually the English army realises that it cannot stay here because they've got no food, they've got no heat, they've got dysentery, they've got very little water, and they cannot just sit here. So they are going to actually instigate the battle that's, that's going to, to start. And so they're going to move forwards to within 250 yards of, uh, of the, um, the, fr- the French army. Now that puts us in range of the, of the longbowmen, and that's what they want to do. In doing that move, that is when the French should have reacted because the the bowmen carry stakes with them, which they stick into the ground in front of their positions, and so they it's like a palisade. It gives them some kind of protection from cavalry. Well, in moving forward, they had to pull those out and 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 move forward, and they are on the flanks. They are at each side of the of the valley, and they are going to move forward and then replace their uh, their stakes and then prepare to to open fire. And the French do not react at all. And this is when they should have done. They should have been ready for uh, uh, to attack as they move forward, and they do not. So what happened next once the archers are in position? I, I suspect this is not now going to go well for the French. No, it's not. I'm, I'm actually just looking at the, the figures of the of the width of the battlefield because this is going to be a very important uh, aspect of it. So at the French end of the battlefield, the width before you've got woods at both sides is about 1,200 yards. And I'm sorry, I haven't translated this into metres, so you're going to have to do this yourselves. So 1,200 yards wide, and at the English end... It is 750 yards wide. So that means it chokes. So in other words, if you are at full extent, 1,200 yards wide, and you want to attack, then you're going to be squeezed in as you're attacking, and that is going to cause a big problem for the French. The other issue to the French, because they're going to react to the archers opening fire. So the archers, just after midday, will open fire um, and cause enormous casualties straight away. 
but also caused confusion because, believe it or not, the French were not ready. A lot of, of the knights, the nobles, had dismounted off their horses and they were they were chatting to their mates because you can imagine this is the first time they've all got together for years in some cases. So they're going across to see Lord so-and-so, he's chatting to Lord so-and-so, and suddenly they start being hit by these arrows. So the horses get agitated, they start prancing around, some of them bolted. The knights get back to their, to their uh, horses, mount their horses and organise an ad hoc charge. And that charge is brought down as they're moving forward. They're also overrunning their own uh, infantrymen, their own men-at-arms that are in front of them. And so immediately it starts to, to fall to pieces. The other thing they did, they reacted to the archers. So instead of going straight up the valley and straight for the centre of the of the English army, they go to the wings and try and take on the archers. And the archers are hopping about and hiding and moving around between their stakes so the cavalry, the knights on their armoured horses, cannot get to them. And these bodkins, these are the armoured piercing uh, arrows that they're firing, are punching through their armour uh, and punching through the armour on the horses and killing the horses. The horses fall over... Once a knight in his heavy armour is on the floor, then it's problematic, um, in the mud especially. And it's even more problematic if there are yet more horses moving in because that choke, that squeezing of the army as it moves forward is meaning that people are, are crowded, they're overrunning each other. The horses are slipping and falling over without even being hit and it just slowly develops into the French had, had called three battles. They developed a system of three battles here which meant that they should be separate. A battle is a basically a group of, of men. These three battles should be se separate, but they immediately get intermingled, and the whole command and control, as we'd call it nowadays, disappears. There is no command and control. It's almost every man for himself, and all they want to do is get to grips with the English, and especially the English archers. One of the things that we have to do when we visit these battlefields, Pete, is try and, in our mind's eye, imagine what it was like. And I'm struggling to think of a more horrific situation than this. I'm, I'm thinking of... You know, to more modern wars, I'm thinking of charging against machine guns on the Somme or fighting through the mud at Passchendaele or the the, the Russians charging the Germans at Stalingrad. But the, the concept that you have a huge army wedged in this tiny space that just can't move and then it's starting to descend into chaos as men are hit all around you. And then obviously, as chaos begins, it compounds and gets worse and worse as time goes on. And all throughout, it, the hail of arrows falling down on this mass of writhing men and horses, it must have been just terrible. I think there's a great analogy with the First World War because the archers are effectively the, the machine gunners of uh, of the Great War. And they're even off to the flank as a machine gun, machine gun would be uh, at any period, even in a, a modern uh, a modern war, you put your machine guns off to the flank. And so that's exactly what they're doing. They are firing at, at enormous distances and then at very close range. And the damage they're doing is just unbelievable. Uh, and And the lack of French control, and that's what it is really, it's discipline and control means that it just gets worse and worse because the mud is being churned up, this very sticky, clarty mud. I mean, there are there are reports that some of the knights drowned because the weight of people falling on top of them slowly pressed them into the mud and they were unable to breathe and they, they suffocated and drowned in the mud. So it is truly... And the, the number of men is also, I think, is, is difficult to comprehend. Between twenty and 30,000 men... Of course, not every single one will be committed to this, uh, this, this charge, but the bulk of them were. To have these men kind of all together being, being stuck, trying to get through stakes and being, uh, being hit by arrows constantly, 
And of course, they're taking prisoners. They are constantly taking prisoners because they're just dragging these knights off the battlefield, making them yield uh, uh, and putting them into a position behind uh, the, the English lines. And we'll hear more about that later. But it's, uh, it is, it, it, it's very hard to comprehend. And it's the numbers that I find difficult. And you, you start looking at it, and the sad thing is the woods are not hemming in this, this battlefield any longer. So you have to imagine the woods at each side hemming you into this very uh, narrow place. But the landscape is exactly the same, and, and it is still farming fields. There's no houses there, so there's nothing to interrupt your view. You, you get a really good feel from this point. And this is not the kind of the, the recommended point to go. There is a, a visitor's uh, explanatory table that is in the low ground, and we're going to walk down to it in a minute. But I always recommend that we stop here because this is a really good place to get a feel of the battle and, uh, and, and to get a good look at the whole battlefield. Well, that's a wonderful description, Peter. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's continue our walk, and, and what's the next thing we're going to come to? So we're going to reverse route back onto the road again and then slowly drop off this high ground that the English army was on. So we're going now to the right of the battlefield. So we've we've walked right the way down. If we're looking from a French perspective, first of all, where we are on the right. That's where we started. We've now gone onto the English lines. We've crossed over the the high ground and we've dropped down to the other side. So we are we are now... On the left, if you're looking from the French perspective, but looking from the English perspective, we're, we're on the right. So we're on the other side of the battlefield. Was that confusing? It sounded confusing to my no, ears. I think, I think you did that very well, mate. That's why you're such a good uh, battlefield guide. <laughs> we dropped down onto the onto the road there, and it's, uh, it's, it's it can be quite a busy road, but uh, that's where we have n- now a new little uh, monolith that uh, which not so little that that uh, has recently been placed there, but also an explanatory table that tells you a little bit of the story of what's what's uh, what's going on here. So it's a good place to stop to draw breath, because the next walk we're going to do as we walk down the road will take us literally across the battlefield. So it uh, it takes us slightly obliquely. Uh, onto the battlefield and then right slap bang into the middle of uh, of where all the action is taking place. So what would we have seen as we walk this ground? Who Whose footsteps are we walking in across this part of the ground? Well, to start off with, because we we start just behind the English lines, so we walk into the English lines where they, they spend the, the, the morning just standing there, and then we would almost be following their move forward till we get to this uh, 250 metres uh, between the uh, the between the two. I must be careful between my metres and my, my yards. I think it was 250 yards. Um, and so we're walking right into the heart of the uh, where all the stakes would have been, um, where the archers would have been because we're slightly on the right-hand side and then we go into the centre of the battlefield where all this mayhem is taking place with the panicking horses and the dead horses and the dead men and the men who are trying to stand up but their armour is so heavy and uh, obviously the archers are getting in, in amongst them. The archers uh, carried a, a, a very um, sharp strong bladed dagger and what they would do is when a knight was on his on his face or on his side and trying to get up they would literally jump onto them and then they would try and work this dagger through the the gaps in their armor and and one of the best places to go to horrifically is the eye holes they would hammer with these daggers in and very often they had a flat uh, area on the hilt that you could hit with the palm of your hand so you you would kind of get this thing through the eye hole and then you bang it with the palm of your hand and it was and horrifically it would go straight through the eye and into the brain and uh, and, and kill the guy but of course that's not always what they want to do if you're looking at a knight that's got nice posh shiny armor on and he looks the part 
then you want him to yield because what you want to do is drag him behind the lines and uh, uh, hold him to ransom. So all of the archers and all of the, the men-at-arms, the English men-at-arms, were always trained to look for those guys that look like they may be wealthy because it's better to take them prisoner than to kill them on the battlefield because that's partly what this is all about. It's about ransom. You then held them and you, you asked for a ransom and you were paid a ransom to let them go home. Well, let's talk more about prisoners because there's not a lot of not more of the battlefield to see. We're, we're reaching the end of our walk around the battlefield, but let's take this moment to talk about the prisoners because there was a fairly dark chapter that ended the battle, wasn't there? There is, and it, and it's 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 an accidental actually. You you would have to say this is not deliberate, but it is truly horrific. So all of these lords and, and the people that were, were taken prisoner, and there's various debates about how many it was, but it runs into, into potentially thousands uh, of men that were, were taken prisoner. And these are some of the great and good of France, you would have to say, uh, and in, including one of the lords just from the, the next village to where I live now. I, I, I happen to be in the church and I noticed there's a comment about him dying at, uh, at Agincourt. Uh, so... They're from all over the north of France, particularly, but uh, but further afield, and they're they're held as prisoners. And then there's a problem. What is becomes uh, obvious is that the baggage train has been overrun. So the English baggage baggage train, which is behind their army, has been overrun. Now there's some debate about whether this was the villagers, just local villagers, who were scavenging, whether it was the Lord of the Manor, so the Lord of Agincourt. Or, or, or whether it was a particularly group of men from the battle that had been sent to try and do this deliberately. But whatever the reason, and I think it's more likely that it was the Lord of Agincourt, um, who's called Yzambert, I think, uh, who just took the opportunity, thought, I'll, I'll sally out from my little, very small fortification, um, which is now behind the English lines, and, and t- kill the, the people on the baggage car, which unfortunately the baggage train was made up of women and young boys. And so not that also in, uh, enrages the English. Um, and But because this is going on behind them, they're worried that there may be another army that has got in behind them. And so uh, the king decided that he couldn't risk it. And there were so many prisoners, these thousands of prisoners, that they had to be killed. Now, the men-at-arms and the, the English lords wouldn't do it because of, of the chivalry aspects of it. Uh, and also the aspects of of money that they're going to basically these guys that are going to be held for ransom they're going to kill them and then there's no money there, and so it was it was basically the, the archers were ordered to do it and the archers who are, you have to say are uh, fairly lowly uh, in the class society of the, of that time they had no qualms their job was killing uh, the enemy killing Frenchmen in this case. And so they say it was only about 200 archers that just literally waded into where the prisoners were. A lot of them still in, still in their armour, so they can't get up easily and start, uh, uh, and start uh, killing them. I don't think the French have ever forgiven us. It's this aspect of the, of the battle, the loss of, uh, as I say, of a good 50% of the French nobility is going to be uh, killed uh, as prisoners uh, here. So it's something that they remembered for a long time. And there's a quote I see that you've got here that uh, that Agincourt signs the death of feudal chivalry. It really was. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine these days, especially given the descriptions of the brutality on the battlefield. But there was a there was a code of conduct that, it, especially when it came to to nobles fighting on a battlefield, that was expected to be adhered to, wasn't there? Uh, there was indeed, and uh, but I think in in this ca- in this case, the, the king was so concerned th- about his numbers and the fact that there were only seven thousand of them uh, against this the, this this enormous you know ten to twenty whatever thousand uh, 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 Frenchmen. 
Um, the losses are, 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 have been debated for forever as to how many loss people were actually killed. But again, broad brush, seven to 10,000 Frenchmen were, were, were lost in, in the fighting, either in this act of, uh, of killing the, the prisoners or during the fighting itself. And the British estimates are about 450. So it's it, the estimates, the, the, the dead are just ludicrous when you look at the size of the of the two armies. Um, so it was a terrible disaster for France, uh, and the English army uh, carried on and 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 moved on and got to 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 Calais. Um, and so they did exactly what they intended to do, and on the way they destroyed one of the biggest French armies that they'd ever had to face. So, so it's an extraordinary battle uh, in so many different ways. And one, of course, that we remember very well, you have to say, if you do anything at history or you're even remotely interested in, in history at all or study history, then you probably know about, about Agincourt. Partly because of uh, of Shakespeare and his uh, uh, his his play, and and of course then we have the modern uh, the modern writers like Bernard Cornwall, uh, who famously writes about Sharp in the Napoleonic period. But he does a very good uh, fictional account, but very factual, uh, as factual as we can be, about Agincourt. And I always recommend it as a really good ripping yarn if you want to have a feel of what it was like during the uh, during the battle. But but most of us, probably more people, will know that the. Films that have been made, uh, Kenneth Branagh um, as Henry V uh, in in the Shakespeare version uh, of, of what happened. Well, we're nearing the end of the the walking tour, Pete. Uh, really, it's just to walk back into the village now. Uh, is there any else, anything else to see as we as we walk back towards Agincourt? Well, there's just one thing that I should have perhaps noticed uh, because you'll see them everywhere. They have a lot of wooden cutouts of knights by the sides of the roads, very, very beautifully uh, painted uh, in in battle colours. And uh, I always remember a tour that I, I took here uh, to Agincourt many, many years ago, one of my earlier battlefield tours at Agincourt. And I had uh, an American who was an expert on the colours of the knights, of what coloured uh, uh, banners and things. And he started telling me who these people were that, that were by the sides of the road, by the colours of their standards and banners. And so the, the French have gone some way into into making the battlefield a little bit more interesting by these these knights and archers that stand around these these almost these wooden cutouts. So it's just well worth looking at those as you as you walk across the the battlefield. But there's very little else because, as we discussed at the beginning, because there is nothing left. There's there's no buildings left. There's there's even the landscape has changed. The trees and the woods have altered, so they're not in the places that they were. But the but the physicality of it, the physicality of where you stand as we as you walk. It does make you make you feel odd in some cases, just knowing how many people died on this very, very small patch of land in northern France. Well, Pete, it's a fascinating battlefield, and I should say, if you're listening to this, when we're allowed to travel again, hopefully next year or, or hopefully in the future, uh, we do a tour. Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours does a trip to Agincourt and Cressy, the two battlefields in this region from this period, the Hundred Years' War, and with Pete Smith guiding it. So if you would like to do this, in the company of Peter Smith, who's been telling us this wonderful account of the battle, um, that can happen when uh, when we're allowed to visit the battlefields again. So you can visit our website at battlefields.com.au to learn all about that. But Pete, just a remarkable account. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this one. A little bit different to what we've done before. 
but just a fascinating account of a, a very fascinating battle. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. Uh, pleasure, mate. I'm looking forward to getting back to the, to the site myself uh, because it's, a, uh, it's one of those battlefields that is well worth going to, to have a look at. And you can tie it in with so many other things as well because there is so much going on. I didn't mention earlier, but I'll just quickly cover it. Is This is a, a rear area where, where during the First World War, where, where a lot of soldiers were billeted. So there's a lot of things going on relative to the First and the Second World War, the fighting in 1940. So this area is absolutely steeped in history and well worth a look at. Well, thank you very much, Pete. It's always a pleasure to walk across these battlefields. And thank you for listening to this podcast. We really hope you're enjoying joining us on these virtual walks across the battlefields. If you're enjoying what we're doing, you can show your appreciation by giving us a review, going particularly on Apple Podcasts, if you're listening on an Apple device, go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and uh, write a few kind words would be greatly appreciated. The more that you do that, the more people will find us and the more great content we can keep bringing you. So thank you very much for tuning in. And Pete, as always, thank you for joining me. I'll see you again next week. Yeah, great, Matt. Look forward to uh, the next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.